Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Ron Matthews, President of Eastern University, as our guest. Well, President Matthews, I always like to start with, uh, you know, the mentors that really helped shape your path to the presidency. So could you speak to that a little bit? I'd be happy to. First, very grateful to my parents. Um, They were balanced. They loved each other. They loved me. They loved my two brothers. So it was a family of love. It was also a family of discipline. Um, My mom made sure that we learned the piano and my dad kind of made sure we were normal. And so it was uh, good early on to have the feeling of accomplishing things that if you did something and worked at it long enough, you'd be able to solve problems and learn music and develop. So very grateful for that. I also had good teachers. I went to public school, but I also had private instruction in music and also in tennis, which has been a lifelong sport for me. And uh, my teachers in various forms uh, privately demonstrated the richness of relationship, of developing professional contacts, of being disciplined, managing your time. There's a lot of life skills that I didn't think about at all when I'm a little kid. But as I've grown in my life and career, it's been significant for me. So, uh, so I have to ask you, when did you start playing the piano? I started when I was four years old. And the unique thing of that was that my mom sat with us every day. So, you know, if you do anything every day, even if it's only like a half hour, by the time you're 12 or 13 and you want to quit to play baseball, you can already play. <laughs> and so uh, fortunately, we didn't quit. We kept playing both my brother and uh, my both my brothers play piano really well not professionally but uh, in any case it's been a, a life enrichment for all of us well and and you had mentioned um you know music and tennis in particular two lifelong um you know things that you can do so can you speak a little bit about that because i do think that you know that is really important you know and, and who knows maybe maybe for guys like us you know it's always nice to hear when you can play music and when you can play tennis you can do it forever it's a great point and candidly my dad was very uh, athletic he was a a boxer and a wrestler and um, although I wasn't built like my dad uh, both he and my mom saw the value of lifelong sports and being in physical condition and of course you can't cram that that's a life choice and and so that was part of our fabric growing up and I'm really grateful for that You know, in regard to music, it's interesting how many things have translated into my present role. You know, in music, you work really hard. And just like in sports, you work really hard so you can play. And the goal is you really want to play because that's the fun part. And it's time oriented. You have a certain season. uh, You have to produce at a certain point. You want that experience to be representative of your best and the best of the organization you're part of, the team. And at the same time, you realize that you're dependent on others. And so for me, I've done a lot of conducting as part of my career. And conducting is an interesting field because a conductor doesn't really touch an instrument. And yet all of the players with whom uh, he or she would work are usually better at what they do in their instrument than what you would do. And so the goal of the conductor is to draw together in a common vision that is hopefully beautiful and transformational uh, in ways that both affirm individual abilities and yet also contextualize it in a community output. And if we do that successfully, 
that moment becomes memorable as an aesthetic experience or as an accomplishment for any organization. And all of those kinds of mini uh, communities and relationships really transferred well into how I serve as a president. And I use the word serve very intentionally because that's what a, a good conductor does. He awakens, he awakens everybody in their skills to joy and to a common vision. Well, and, and I, I love hearing that because I think you really describe what good culture is all about. You know, and, and we hear so so often how important it is to have a positive culture, a positive environment. Can you talk about how important it is to have that positive culture? And then on the opposite side, opposite side when you don't have a positive culture, how damaging that can be? Yeah. Well, like any institution of higher education, unless you have a huge endowment, there have been some financial pressures operationally, making sure that we are in a position that is fiscally sound. Uh, and then, of course, we have COVID. And then we have very significant conversations that are ongoing about uh, institutional, local, national uh, racism. And so in some ways, coming into this role, this is now my sixth year, uh, it was a time where there was so much stress in what had historically been uh, a beautiful kind of uh, understanding of higher education and, and nobility and edification and vocational alignment and opportunity. Uh, and suddenly now it's really institutional stress. And so coming into this role, one of the things that I sensed was really important was that the number one thing was for us to have a commonly shared vision. And so that was really the first part of our new strategic plan, which was a three-year plan to move us from uh, stress to stability. And that started with our vision, our mission, and our values. And I thought it would take at least you know, a half a year to a year to codify that and to integrate that into our community, and then to start launching that outside, telling the great stories that come yeah. from our particular institution being missionally related. Uh, so that has been the good part. The other part was that coming into this role, this was my first presidency. And so uh, I was coming in as you know, a professor of music, as the chair of the music department, as the executive director for Fine and Performing Arts Division, which housed four arts-making uh, departments. But candidly, I suddenly was the president and CEO, having been launched three tiers of administration higher than where I had been serving. And the irony of that and the vulnerability of that was such that, you know, I suddenly was the boss of the vice presidents with whom I didn't even have to answer before because I was lower in the administrative role. That gave me the opportunity to affirm the gifts and my absolute need for our vice presidents, our cabinet, to uh, instruct me, to teach me, and also to know that I was affirming their expertise in ways that would build a team so that my goal was to help them flourish and to empower them to think innovatively and to launch new programs. And fortunately, that's happened. I mean, a couple of years ago, just three years ago in the spring semester, we were a little over 3,000 students in headcount. And this semester, we're just under 6,000. So, you know, it's been amazing what happens when people are liberated to exercise their creative gifts and make a difference for an institution. Absolutely. Now, are you able to still teach? I teach on occasion. And by that, I mean, I don't have to do grading. <laughs> 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 I, 
but I get to speak and to perform in both internally in our coursework here and then also outside. I find that if I can get a piano into a room where I'm supposed to speak, I usually don't have to speak as long and people usually listen more effectively. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, you know, Eastern University and, and the relationships that are formed between the institution and the local community. You know, oftentimes when I'm speaking to administrators, there is, you know, such a bond that really needs to be formed. And the university and the community really rely on each other. Can you talk about the relationship between Eastern and, and the local community? Sure. Eastern has several campuses, uh, one in Harrisburg, one in Philadelphia proper. But our main campus is in what's called the main line of Philadelphia. And the area is Radnor Township. And this is a very affluent area. So in one sense, the area doesn't really need Eastern University. On the other hand, it's a great opportunity for us to partner with our neighbors and with the businesses in the area to provide employment. We have a number of our students that serve um, as home supporters, as nannies, as uh, drivers, as uh, just go-to people. We also have internships and a number of, you know, student teaching, business and local kinds of internships and externships. We have, you know, social work practicums, our nursing clinicals and local hospitals. So there's a lot of engagement at large. The other thing is that because our students are in a relatively small town called Wayne, the economic benefit for faculty, staff and students, as well as for the community is really integrated. The better that the small community does on Wayne, in Wayne is also healthy for Eastern and vice versa. Uh, we try to get as many people on campus from our community because it's a beautiful campus. A lot of people walk their dogs and things like that. We want them to feel welcome and part of that. Uh, all of that is important, not only vocationally and with business, but just relationally when it comes to how Eastern develops in the future. Well, and, and, and you know, how about, you know, speaking of, of, relationships with businesses, you know, whether they be, you know, within an hour and a half drive of, of campus or beyond, um, how important is it to build business relationships to ensure that students are career ready, especially yeah. in a career where, um, you know, their, their jobs are going to, are going to change more than likely. Yeah. That's such a great point. Uh, we do have a center for career development on campus. It's an important and growing aspect of the education. There are some majors which are vocationally rooted. I've, you know, referred to some of them, business, nursing, education. There are others that are not necessarily as immediately uh, related to vocation. You know, some of the historic liberal arts, performing arts. And yet at the same time, it is often those categories that teach us a deeper way to think or a multifaceted way to think, which still has application for vocational benefit. And so, you know, we're a member of the Mainline Chamber of Commerce. Like I said, the Center for Career Development does statistical analysis about our postgraduate education, what happens to our alumni. Uh, we're fortunate that 95% are involved in intentional nonprofit work, uh, either for, for uh, salary or volunteer work, or that they are involved in their uh, traditional choice of um, work and uh, placement in you know, position. So, you know, those are important statistics. It's not the only statistic that justifies an education 
but it is certainly supportive because you want that link of return on investment, but it's for a lifetime. And as you said, uh, the data right now shows that people change not only jobs, but careers multiple times in, in the longevity of a working um, experience. So, so what do you say to students and parents, um, you know, again, whether traditional age students and parents and family or the non-traditional student as well, you know, the, the value of education is being challenged more so today, may, maybe than it ever has. Um, and, and, and maybe even the value of faith-based education, you know, what, how, how do you address those questions that come from prospective students, families, and current students? Um, well, uh, fortunately, we are committed to educational access. Uh, we launched a trademarked mode of delivery called LifeFlex programs. Um, on the graduate level, this has revolutionized um, the market. We offer MBA uh, in data science, master's in data science, master's in business administration. Those two programs are presently uh, can be taken in under a year. Uh, if they're successfully taken in order and for under $10,000, it's $9,900 for a complete accredited certified degree. Uh, we're spinning that off into other graduate programs as well as this fall starting it with our undergraduate program. So the three, the three values there are excellence, accessibility, and affordability. And we see that as missional for us. We don't want education to be elitist. We want it to be available. And that goes in, our mission is to prepare graduates for impacting the world through faith, reason, and justice. And we see that in our order. And although the market in higher education is competitive, on the other hand, I think for us, we are not going to compete at the same level when it comes to wealth or opulent facilities. We want excellent facilities but we want them to be functional and also value-based. We don't want to model expectations that students may not have when they get out. And so for us, the expectation is how do we rightly steward our resources? How do we have conversations that are both safe and courageous about being human, about asking questions about the future, about God and faith, about how we talk to each other when we disagree? These are our life values for us. And at the same time, this is a time where we want people to have fun and we want people to play sports and to be involved in performance activities. So uh, this is open to all of our campus and, and even online, although the access is different. We really try to elevate the fact that Eastern is big enough to be credible, but small enough to be relational. And that uh, that is one of the distinctives of our online space as well. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that answered that question and several others. So that, <laughs> no, I, I greatly appreciate that. And, and just to speak to, um, you know, how, how intimate the campus setting can be, right? And the relationships that the president can form with other staff members, but also students, you know, it's a delicate balance, you know, because I think the question becomes, how big do you want to get without sacrificing the relationships of a quote-unquote smaller institution. Does that make sense? It's a great point. And part of that is defined by our main campus. We have about 1,200 beds. And that kind of, at this point, unless we would change our housing policy to accommodate uh, more off-campus living, uh, that's going to be pretty much our ceiling. So uh, that gives us the opportunity to really focus on the undergraduate needs 
the undergraduate on-campus needs are the most costly because the question is, why come to Eastern or why come to any place? And it's about the community that you're going to experience. So student groups are really high on our student government association priority and our student groups get funding and they create these micro communities as well as opportunities to interact with um, other regions. And so that's been an excellent source. We, um, we try to engage everyone into the life of the campus through our Eastern Magazine, publications, Day of Giving, uh, invitations for special events, and homecoming, of course. And for our students, we want to model, how do you have a, a community that is intentionally diverse and in our tradition and commitment, intentionally Christ-centered? You know, Jesus essentially gave us a big commandment, but it's also kind of an easy commandment. The first part is to love God with everything, and the second is to love our neighbor. And so the whole thing is love. Now, we as humans have a tendency to try to define what that means, but we all kind of know what love feels like. And so love is certainly caring. Love is certainly charitable. Love is sacrificial. Love doesn't demand its own way. I mean, there there are ways that we can do this. And so one of my goals is that when people come out, whether they come out as Christians or not, they will have a memory of a community that loved one another and a community that really cared for the big issues of life and human flourishing. I, I love that, you know, because one of my questions, again, you're a step ahead. The questions that I've, <laughs> I'm ready to ask, you, you're, you're, you're covering those right now. But you know, I think you just defined really in part what student success means. Uh, you know, student success becomes in some ways harder to measure because there have been so many pressures on young people. Many of them uh, were in isolation throughout two years yeah. of COVID. And so there are emotional developmental issues. There are losses of family members. There are considerations of finances involved. So in many ways, they're coming to an academic environment, to an academic environment that they have not been prepared for. And suddenly they're living in dorms. Maybe they're living in, in a double or triple room and, and they've been in isolation with a smartphone or a computer. And like, how do we live together? So, you know, those issues of stress, counseling, academic support, this has been a huge investment for Eastern and our commitment with the undergraduate on-campus community because of that. But what does student success look like? First of all, it looks like they're going to graduate. You know, we want to produce graduates. To us, it's the continuation of the program from beginning to end. Secondly, we want uh, students, after they graduate, to be able to have, like I said, this memory of productivity, of innovation, of creative disagreement in ways that will equip them for a world that doesn't deal with difference very well. We have been politicized and weaponized and we yell at each other and that's modeled for us in popular culture. And we think, what happened to the capacity to disagree well? And honestly, I'll be very candid. I came to Eastern in 1992 right. and what impressed me was seeing a community that disagreed so well. And I remember my first faculty meeting and, you know, there were these vociferous arguments. And then afterwards, you know, the same colleagues that were arguing went out laughing and arm in arm. And I thought, wow, I've never <laughs> seen that before. So success looks like how we uh, disagree, how we 
uh, experience diversity, and then lastly, how we are committed to loving intentionally. And that can take place vocationally, but it also takes place relationally. And, um, you know, I think when we do our alumni data gathering, what comes out as in the top three things mentioned is always the community, the community. And everybody talks about community. We want community. Well, community doesn't just happen. You know, we, we have to learn to live together, how to find commonality, how to disagree, how to still work productively. And so there's a lot of kind of soft skills relationally that we want our students to have and to see modeled for us. So, you know, do we want them to get a job? Absolutely. Do we want them to be able to uh, flourish in that job? Absolutely. Do we want them to have a career path that will enlarge them and give them opportunities to move forward? Absolutely. And, you know, Center for Career Development, our alumni surveys, all of that plays into it in our connections with the neighborhood. But the bottom line is what kind of human beings are we going to be? And are we going to continue to be curious and learning and view whatever skills and strengths we have as a service to others rather than an entitlement for power? Absolutely. So what are the two and I know there's more than two, but what are your top two highest priorities? Okay, uh, great question. Um, we are in a five-year strategic plan right now that hopefully will move us from what we have been experiencing, which is an enhanced stability, to a position of strength. Some of those measurables are financial. Some of those are enrollment-based. But overall, the big thing for us is we want to steward all of our resources whether we call it time, talent, and treasure, in the context of human flourishing. That would really be the big thing. We want our employees to be really happy. We want to make sure that we can pay them fairly. We want to make sure that there's a progress for their careers, which includes education. And that's why we provide educational access for our employees. And um, then for all of our students, uh, you know, to measure this, the priority for me would be that they are everything that our programs have been designed to produce. You know, if there's any difference between what they anticipate and what they get or what they need and what they get, then we're not really fulfilling fully what we are envisioning our mission to be, our mission to be. So the two big things then would be uh, human realization and uh, human empowerment for flourishing. So the institution began in 1925, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Can you talk about how the institution has evolved, you know, over that over that time span? You know, I'm always I am always so impressed with the resiliency, you know, of a number of private and, and faith-based institutions. And Eastern's no different. So I'd, I'd I'd love to understand, you know, how do you how do you continue to uh not just sustain but thrive? Yeah, uh, another great question. Uh, so Eastern began in 1925 as Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was begun to try to hold the uh, Protestant arm of the church together. At that point, there was a, a lot of um, energy in trying to defend turf, which was what was the integrity of the gospel in personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God through Christ, and what represented the impact of the gospel, which was social justice, doing good work, charitable acts, equally a part of the gospel. You know, Jesus identified with the poor, the outcast, the suffering, the lonely, the imprisoned. 
And so Eastern was started from the very beginning to keep that together. It is, in fact, loving God and loving your neighbor. In 1952, Eastern Baptist College was started because that was representative of the growth that had been in the Division of Liberal Arts and Sciences with the seminary. So when that started to flourish and prosper and was identified as a need, that actually became an undergraduate college in support of the seminary. And uh, that was the next 25 years or so. In 1972, because of the impact of the Baptist college in larger Christianity, the word Baptist was taken out and it became Eastern College, a Baptist institution. Now, I should point out that today is the day when Eastern Baptist College was started in 1952. So, your question's a perfectly timed one for me to make a plug for the Founders' Day of the Baptist College. So 1972, then it became Eastern College. And then in 2001, it became Eastern University because of the levels of degrees we were offering, the multiple locations in which we were offering them. And candidly, uh, at that point, the, the seminary had been separated from the university and came back into the university system as the College of Palmer Seminary and College. So it kind of sounds like a country Western song in that the mother (laughs) that gave birth to the child grows up and the child adopts the mother. And honestly, we had a dog, I guess it would be a country song. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And I I always love, I just, I love, you know, hearing about the history, you know, the history that you just shared because, you know, and, and I'm, I would imagine this is something that you think about and, and the words that you hear in Rollman Cliff, you know, you hear about that, and especially up in the Northeast. Yes. Um, so, you know, how, how do you address that? So there are two ways. First of all, in living into our mission, our mission is what distinguishes us from what we would like to think nearly all other schools, but we don't want to dissipate our mission. Our mission is why people come. And so, Part of that involves uh, the fact that as we anticipate this precipitous drop in the demographic of traditional higher education students coming out of high school, uh, the one thing we want to do is ensure that our community and our mission are intact. Uh, The second thing that we want to do is ensure that we have the resources to provide the best experience, particularly for that demographic of high school students coming to university. I really do believe that there's room, even in the Northeast, for unique, um, distinct missions. For us, we are uh, unapologetically Christian university, but what that means is that anyone can come to Eastern University who gets into the programs, and we have students that are Muslims, that are Jewish, and oftentimes they come because we are committed to faith. And even if it is a different faith tradition or a different faith religion, the point is that that there is a respect for the conversation, for sacred writings. Uh, We have an initiative with a a, a temple, Temple Beth Shalom in Needham, Massachusetts, as an exchange of students for us to have conversation, dialogue with the other. And so that, to me, creates a diversity that is intentional. At the same time, we want our faculty and our staff to be oriented in love to our mission so that there is that sense 
of sharing, modeling, and um, and loving that will be hopefully transformational. Uh, some of this may seem like repetitive, but the point that I'm trying to make is it's not simply about money and demographics. We really believe that the essential power of our university and our mission is found in community. And if we are rightly doing that, people will want to identify. I do think that particularly in the conversations about religion, people are exhausted about fighting. And there is a fatigue to this. And people want to be together. And the commonality of our humanity should allow us to disagree in love. And if we can actually do that, model that, and produce graduates that can do that, I think we're going to season the world in a way that will be effective for what we all are hoping for, the kingdom of God on earth. Well, you know, absolutely. And, and you know, when, you know, especially when you, you know, when you hear about the importance of, of diversity and the wanting of diversity and inclusion. And again, I would, I, I think I would include, um, you know, a faith-based conversation, mission focus, that it doesn't mean a lot without belonging. Yeah. And so can you speak about the importance and expand upon the importance of, of feeling like you belong? Uh, first of all, thank you for asking that question because you, you have anticipated me now. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we have, um, we have a, a position uh, that was part of our initiatives a, a number of years ago in the area of diversity and inclusion. Uh, that position is a special assistant to the president for diversity, equity, and the last word is belonging. And the reason why we chose that word is because even the word inclusion sounds a bit statistical, perhaps even a bit hierarchical. But the word belonging is an emotional word. It means that when I come to this community, I don't feel like I'm a guest. I feel like I'm actually a member of a community. And so how we do that, you know, we have not perfected that, but it allows us to ask really hard questions about who doesn't feel like they belong. Now, we understand that at some point, if there are faith commitments, there will be disagreements that are theological, that are cultural, political, all of that. But fundamentally, are we creating the space and the trust that says, you know, I, I feel I belong here. I feel I can make a contribution here. I feel I can grow here. I can ask really hard questions and I won't be called names or hated for that. Um, with a changing enrollment every four years on the undergraduate level, that's not like a one and done mission. That's going to be a perpetual mission. But the, the beginning of this and the continuation is based upon our commitment to that very word. What does it feel like to be diverse and to have equity and to belong? Um, so I hope that clarifies our commitment. I think it's the best word Absolutely. that we could use at this point. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So now looking forward... Where, where do you see Eastern University in five years? Uh, that's a great question. I don't pretend to be clairvoyant. So <laughs> I, I will say this reverently and humbly. Yeah, I hope that we have some new buildings that we are committed to and that our present buildings are revamped in ways that are attractive and yet not opulent. And uh, at the same time, I hope that our mission has been expanded in our programmatic uh, outreach. Uh, we are now international. 
We are developing an online niche. Uh, it has been well received. Uh, we have over 4,500 online students. Um, we, we foresee this growing. And at the same time, we are fully committed to undergraduate education. The, the upside for us is that with athletic initiatives, we just started football this past year. Um, we have over half of our on-campus uh, community related and engaged in athletics in some way. Um, a couple hundred involved in performing arts. It's these transformational experiences that really make an on-campus community rich. Um, so we see that going forward in ways that if we are rightly uh, facilitated with buildings, rightly resourced as far as student body, that we will be rightly resourced financially. Well, absolutely. Well, President Ronald Matthews, hey, thank you so much for this time. We really appreciate the thought leadership and learning more about Eastern University. Thanks so much for the opportunity and all the best to you and your work. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.